one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football. The Pozzo family, who run Watford as a personal fiefdom, are reported to be seeking their third manager of the season. Claudio Ranieri will be sacked as soon as his replacement has been secured. He lasted 14 matches and will leave with relegation looking likely. This is what happens when a club ignores the convention of continuity. The question is, have the Pozzos written off relegation as a business expense. Because of parachute payments, it's likely that clubs like Watford, and Norwich for that matter, will bounce straight back. Just look at Fulham running away with the championship. So Jordan, simple question. Is the Premier League in danger of becoming a bit of a closed shop? Yes, it is. I think it actually, to some degree, already is a, a closed shop. I was thinking over the weekend after the Watford defeat that there needs to be some kind of like Premier League B League where you'd have the likes of Fulham, West Brom, Watford, Norwich in it who can't make their minds up about what league they really want to be in. Not quite good enough for the for the for the Premier League, but obviously it's way too good for the for the championship. And I think that we've known with Watford as an example for a while that the business model for them works, you know, they, they don't mind going down as long as they know they can get the finances that, that come with going back up again. I tend to think about the fans in this example and what it must be like to be a Watford or a West Brom or a Norwich fan. And I think I saw some of the, some banners or some, some, some paper signs at the Watford game where they were calling for Ranieri to go. And I thought to myself, so are even now the Watford fans almost indoctrinated in this idea and acceptance that this is what we do now, you know, <laughs> a handful or two of bad games and we sack the manager. That's that's what we do now, right? And I think it's one thing if that's the owner's model, but if the, even if the supporters themselves are now buying into that, that for me is a lot more concerning because it says to me now that you've lost all sense of what it is you're supporting your football team for. Okay, nobody wants to get battered every single weekend. I understand that. But I think there's a problem now the Premier League have created whereby the wealth is so, the riches of being in the Premier League are so, so high 
it seems to be Premier League or nothing. And I remember hearing a Sunderland fan on the radio about five, six years ago, maybe a bit longer, and they were they were on the verge of going down themselves. And he said, everyone is trying to like work out examples or work out theories and give their opinions about how Sunderland can stay in the Premier League. But at the end of the day, football's football. If we go down, we go down. You know, we might come back up, we might not. But we still support our team and this idea that it's Premier League or the world ends. No, I'm an Arsenal fan, so maybe I'm coming from a bit of a snobby, you know, snobby stance <laughs> up here that if my club went down, it'd be the end of the world for me. But for teams that maybe aren't as big or used to be in the Premier League as mine are, I think they need to get their heads around the idea that you may go down. I think it's the actual, are you are you trying to stay in the Premier League? I think is the bigger concern. I think what I saw from the Watford fans is giving up the joy of wanting to be in the Premier League in favour of this quick turnaround of managers that may keep them in the Premier League. Yeah, I thought it was ironic that the defeat by Norwich, which did for Ranieri, came on the fifth anniversary of Graham Taylor's death. Now, there was a manager who was fundamental to that club's development. He understood the importance of, of community and continuity at that level. Is there a bit of a moral there, Seb? Yeah, without question, Mike. So the Taylor comparison is, is perfect, really, because I think one of the problems at Watford is the manager now is an employee and solely an employee when they make an appointment it's not with a that kind of that, that football word that gets tossed around a lot it's not with a project in mind is it it's a someone comes in it's a different voice in the change room different set of tactics and that's it they don't really have any control over the club's philosophical approach to recruitment they don't have a uh, an effect on the kind of the internal workings of the sort of the the departments within the club it's just a person to sit in a chair and that is the complete opposite of, uh, of Graham Taylor. Actually, just a, a quick plug, because I, on a recent visit to Vicarage Road, I bought a copy of his autobiography, and he talks about his life at Watford. And I think one of the things that stuck with me after reading it was just how much he loved that period of time and just how invested in not just the performance of the team, but the whole thing. And you've mentioned community there and fans, and yes, that's very, very important, but also had a real bond with certain players. and. It, don't have that at Watford now. You don't have that. And I I mean, I haven't been to Vicarage Road for a couple of years now, but I used to think about that. Anytime I go there and you see the statue of him outside the club shop. Yeah, well, that was a club I grew up with as a kid and it has changed fundamentally. And that's probably why I've become alienated from it, to be perfectly honest. That's an admission that probably won't go down as a surprise among some Watford fans, and but I'm not going to really apologise for it. You know, when you look at the club at the moment, Jordan, there are unmistakable signs of, of, of tensions, aren't there? Dress, especially in the dressing room. There was a, there was a moment during that game where uh, Yao Pedro, very talented young kid, only 20 years old, absolutely called out Josh King, who's a senior pro. Now, you know, we've all been around long enough to know that's the sort of clash which probably gets amplified the moment they get back in the changing room at half time. Interesting that Ranieri in what was probably his valedictory ad address, criticised so-called selfish players. But how can you have loyalty as players and staff if basically that's not reciprocated? Well, you can't. You can't, Mike. I think um, asking that from, from any individual when you're not giving it out yourself... I think is I think is a crazy one. I think the tensions that we're talking about amongst the players at Watford, I think, is born out of what well, a frustration that they they're struggling at the you know the bottom end of the table. But I think it's also 
a collection of just random players, some are decent, some aren't, that don't really know why they're here, but it's a Premier League club and it's kind of near London, so it's not a bad gig. They're not really buying into any kind of long-term project of let's try and get Watford, you know, up, you know, maybe a cup run in the next couple of years, maybe European football. There's no real, the, the, the team are disjointed because they're all a bunch of, random players first of all but they're also not buying into any one particular philosophy or project as you as said mentions earlier on so when you get that I think you get a lot of clashes of personalities of well do you know what you're doing I don't know what I'm doing what are you doing and why are we here and we're going to play a game and it just all feels a little bit all over the place and I think that the clashes for me are no are no surprise I think again going back to the Watford supporters if I'm watching that I don't know what I'm watching I just don't know what I'm watching. I'm just seeing a collection of individuals with their own interests, not only on the field, but off the field as well. So it's, it's those guys I feel sorry for the most, but the, the clashes that we saw over the weekend, uh, they're not surprising to me because I just think you've got a bunch of individual random players of differing levels from bought by different managers who don't quite know what they're doing, if, if, if that makes sense. Can I introduce a word here, Mike, just because I think it's pertinent? Accountability. Mm. Right. If you like Jordan's hit the nail on the head there, because if you if you recruit across several different managerial eras, eras word that flatters managerial appointments at Watford, you know. Uh, but obviously, <laughs> months. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. So if you do that, and also you've got a head coach who we know that Watford can will happily sack someone after ten games. Where is the kind of overarching sense of responsibility? Because all the people that are actually all the architects of the situation are the people not on television. They're not in the firing line. So what you have is players who, the worst thing you can ever give a professional footballer is an excuse. Worst thing, because like there's always the the opportunity to pass responsibility somewhere else because there's always a, it's a problem with the manager. It's a problem with my teammate. It's a problem with the crowd. They're not being supportive enough. It's a problem with the fixture list. Like this is, this is what happens when you have a lack of clarity at a football club. You don't get the opportunity to point the finger at someone and ask them to take responsibility for what's going on. And this is Watford. And this, it isn't just Watford. There are a few clubs like this. There are quite a few clubs outside of the Premier League like this. And there are clubs all over Europe like this. But this is what you invite when you... When you create a system which, when it goes well, you can act like the smartest person in the room. When it goes badly, there's no one around to talk about it. There's no one around to kind of to to front up to television camera or to, to fans. And this is the result. I, I, I totally agree with that. And just to build on that, I think there's an interesting comparison, but not with Everton. I think there's also a bunch of players there that have been bought by a series of managers over the last five or six years. But the difference I would say is there was an incident on the after the game where Bill Kenwright came out and addressed some of the some of the fans. Now, Seb mentions the word accountability. Accountability is one of my favourite words in life. I don't think we have <laughs> enough of it in, in society, in politics, in sports, in business. I, I just don't think we have enough of it. But it's one of my favourite words. I think he was taking accountability for probably stuff that isn't even on necessarily his responsibility. He has other people that, you know, run that club and work with him there. So what's happening at Everton? I don't want to move away from Watford here, but I just thought it was an interesting example there of someone who is taking accountability even maybe when he shouldn't <laughs> do you know what I mean no, he's not, no, he's no. not the, I don't think he's the, he's the majority shareholder there anymore whereas at Watford I don't know who these people are we know the names but we don't really know these people and they as, as Seb says they don't, they're not on TV so they get to escape that scrutiny that I think they would get if they if they were being held more, more accountable there you know there are some really good people in the background at Watford um you know 
Miguel Rios is one of the best scouts around, I feel. And, you know, you look at their recruitment, okay, it's it's done in industrial capacities. You know, 21 players they've had in since July. Samir, Hassan, KMB, they look decent. Samir's a good player. Yeah. Samir's a good player. And they, they looked good January signings. But probably will that be enough? I doubt it. What do you think, Seb? They got a chance. I know we've written them off pretty much now, but have, you know, have they, have they got a chance? They've got a chance by default, Mike, because, like you say, there are good people there. There are people at Watford who can spot a player, and there is a chance that they can bring in the right sort of head coach before the end of the season, who would provide the jolt that their system depends on. And there's always a chance, and also because I, I think this is quite a quite a poor Premier League at the you know, sort of bottom five is quite weak. So you just have to be the least bad. It's like uh, you know you don't have to outrun the bear; you just have to outrun you. So it's kind of easy. But I don't know. But I I think the kind of the virtue of scouting is is something that has to be looked at in isolation. The ability to recruit players like there's no. There's no Michael Edwards without Jurgen Klopp, in a sense. Michael Edwards is a hugely talented guy, I understand that, but the virtue of Liverpool's system is the fact that everything complements everything else. Mm. Um, and mm. the, the, all these little sort of interdependencies matter. So you can have the smartest recruiting staff in the world, but if you don't have the person that can use what you've identified, what does it matter? So yeah, they can do, but then I think that <laughs> that they remain that they have that opportunity uh, describes a kind of a level of dysfunction at the bottom end of the table, really, rather the, than anything else. The reason why, just briefly as well, I think they have got a chance as well is they have goals. They do have some scorers in that team. And I think unlike a Burnley, uh, even Leeds to some degree, who are struggling to score goals, I think at the bottom end, it's I think it's more about can you score goals? Top end, I think defence win leagues. But I think to stay in the league, I think if you've got goal threats, I think you can score your way out of trouble. And they do have some of those in their team, to be fair to them. Yeah, Watford have yet to keep a clean sheet. Yeah, and they've got a key game coming up next on, on February the 5th, which is on BT Sport, uh, at Burnley. Now, Jordan, you saw to your probably displeasure yesterday that you know Burnley were as obdurate as ever at Arsenal. A lot of familiar virtues in that performance, wasn't there? There was, and I don't think we saw anything from Burnley that we didn't we didn't expect. You know, they they knew that Arsenal's home record is is impressive. I know they got beat in the week in the cup there, but and to City in the last home games, so I've undone my own point there. But generally, their home record is really really good. So they just thought, you know, if we can get out of here a point, we know how to stifle Arsenal. They think they beat Arsenal, but they beat us last year at the Emirates. I think, if I'm not not mistaken, there. So they knew what the plan was. Everybody else knew what the plan was going to be and they executed the plan to perfection. I think towards the end, they could have nicked it as well, as was the plan. The reason why I think Burnley are in trouble and I have for a while now is that I'm just not sure if the be solid, be hardworking and will nick a goal can, can, it, that runs out after a while. You can do that for three, four, maybe five years, but eventually I think you have to evolve because I think the teams that are coming up I think they're evolving. We've seen in the past few years, Wolves, Leeds, Villa has returned. These teams have kind of come back into the Premier League and are adding more to the league than just we are hard to beat. And I think that is the concern. So while it, I think, was a very, very worthwhile point they got at the Emirates yesterday, I fear that in the long term, that will not be enough to keep them in the Premier League. Yeah, you know, resilience is a, is a bit of a muscle memory, isn't it, that a team rarely loses. But the problem is that the team remains static, so therefore 
that acts against you in the long run. That's a big weakness for them, isn't it? Now, they're looking to strengthen it at last, one would say, Seb. Aaron Ramsey, I just can't see him fitting in there. No, and one of the reasons you can't is because, and I think this is one of the fundamental difficulties that Burnley experiences, it's really hard to recruit. It's really hard to get players to go to Burnley. Well, John's right in the sense that you need to evolve as a team, but it's very difficult to evolve when you're so when you're so associated with a single style, which I imagine for some players is very off-putting. So it's kind of a, a you know, never-ending circle and a kind of chicken-egg situation. Can you recruit an Aaron Ramsey type to change the way you play? No, because the Aaron Ramsey type doesn't really believe that you want to evolve in the first place. So it's very difficult. I don't see it. I think Juventus to Burnley is kind of a strange one. I'm still staggered that Maxwell Cornet is playing for Burnley. Same. I find that very odd. <laughs> I think he's so talented. He's such a good player. And... and um. It's a hell of a recruiting job by Sean Dyche and his staff. I don't know. And I, I think fundamentally there are players, and that's not a skirt around the issue, there are a lot of players that would look down on Burnley, think they're above it. And also, I suppose for, for someone like Dyche, the problem you have is when you make a lunge at a player like that, are you infecting your playing group with something you don't want, attributes which are undesirable? I think you might do. Because um, we've talked about resiliency. Now, the one commodity you have to have if you're a football team like that is buy-in and commitment. And what you can't have is sort of players that come in, think, you know, are on a little bit more than everybody else and think they're above mucking in with the kind of the, the group effort. You can't have that. You can't have that. Can't have that. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is here. I agree with everything that we said. I just don't know what the route forward is. They, they, need, they need a centre forward. They need goals, clearly, because lost Chris Wood and he wasn't scoring goals anyway. But it's, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. It's not as simple as machine gunning money at people, is it, Jordan? Because you think about, OK, Chris Wood... Newcastle. It was interesting that Eddie Howe, after that win at Leeds, made a point of stressing the importance of recruitment. And he mentioned Wood and Trippier in that regard. You know, we're led to believe they'll be busy in the in the week that's that's left in the window. Up to five further players coming in again. It's not again, it's not that simple, is it? You know, are, pl- are players gonna turn down Newcastle, Jordan? Some will. I think it's about motive. I think it's about, you know, what's their reason for wanting to go there. I mean, I don't know if many players are going to be excited by the idea of a relegation battle with Newcastle United. And that's why I'm coming here. I'm coming for the fight. It's like, I don't see that. I think you're going to have to, and they probably know this, over inflate certain wage offers to get certain players there. And then you have that kind of whole situation whereby you've got players that are playing for you that don't really want to be there. They're there because you've doubled, tripled their wages. So I don't know if if that is the answer as well. I mean, even loans, people are saying, oh, they should get loans in. But I always feel it's weird when you kind of get loans in when you're when you're fighting relegation, because the person that comes in has no real reason to go that extra mile. Do you know what I mean? To keep you in the in, in the league. So I think you're better off just buying a player on a two, three-year deal that at least he knows he's there for the next two or three years. So he doesn't want to be in the championship. I think you get 10, 20% more out of that player. Throwing four or five new players into that team, I don't think it's a great idea either. It's not the best team, but I wonder with Newcastle not being cut adrift, if just two or three smart signings is 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 better at this stage than just a wholesale let's change half the team sort of situation. But um I think I think they'll go down personally regardless, but I think it's giving themselves the best possible chance. 
the two signings they've made so far, I think, are sensible, if not overwhelming. If they continue on that trajectory of just really smart tweaks rather than wholesale changes now, I think they've got a better chance of staying in the Premier League. If they do go down, Seb, what would the real damage be? Would it be reputational rather than financial? And you know, does that point out the fact that the nature of the club's ownership puts them under the biggest pressure of all the clubs at the bottom? I don't know. It's a, it's a little bit of a question without an answer, Mike, because they go down, they'd buy their way back up, and I'm sure they would bounce straight back into the Premier League. I mean, their, their kind of recruiting targets would probably have to change, but I see it only as, a, as sort of a delay in the inevitable. You have that much money. It's not that you can't fail. It's just that you, you know, the, the boundaries which you occupy get narrower and narrower. So actually, with, with that in mind, I think the... The two signings they have made are quite sensible in a way because I don't think I need Kieran Trippier has had a great career, but I don't think either he or Chris Wood would demand a move were they to drop into the championship. I don't think they would see themselves as above that, so that's quite sensible. But no, they if they went down, they'd spend a huge amount of money and they'd come straight back up, and they'd probably plunder a few championship rivals along the way. I suspect. So yeah, I'm not sure it makes a difference. Mm. Yeah, Jordan, you you follow the sort of political nuances of of top class sport. Newcastle, the squad are now in Saudi Arabia, warm weather training in, in Jeddah. Eddie Howe talks about this. Yeah, it's just for football reasons. Is it a bit more nuanced than that? I always find it, and I know that you guys are politics guys as well. We know what's happening with the current government in this country at the moment. And I always find it interesting when, <laughs> no one's asked this question as well. Whenever you see the people around Boris Johnson being asked a question about Boris Johnson, no one's asked the question, do you feel a bit silly having to lie and defend what we all know is indefensible? Do you do, just be honest? Do, do you just feel a little bit like I know you got to defend him, I know you got to back him, and cool, we get it, we get the game, but be honest, you feel a bit silly, don't you? And I feel with Eddie Howe, it's a little bit similar. I'm a little bit like you're not an idiot, you know what's going on here, but you're in a position where you listen. It's a job, you're paid very well. Let's, I don't have any problem with anybody getting paid. But when he comes out and says it's for footballing reasons, I just need to myself, uh, you, listen, we, you've got to say that we get it. But come on, come on, Eddie. Come on, Eddie. We know what's going on here. And I think the whole, the this whole warm weather training thing in Jeddah, wherever it is, we know what it is. And I don't know if we as the media or journalists can really beyond kind of applying a consistent amount of pressure to kind of ask questions about what's happening behind the footballing element of this club. I don't know there's much more we can really do at the moment. I think we've got to be quite smart and pick our moments. Um, I, know that, I know there's a lot of investigations that are going on at the moment to look into what's really happening there. But um, I, I just think Eddie Howe's in a position whereby he's, got, he's in an impossible position because I'm still not convinced, even if they stay in the Premier League, that he's there next season. So never mind go down. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. So there's a lot going on there at the moment, not only off the field, behind the scenes, but I think on the field as well, it's, it feels a little bit of a mess. But to, to, to answer your question, I mean, I think we're all aware of the political angle of, of, of the takeover and what's happening there. But I think we've got to almost pick our moments as to when and when we go for the throat, if you like. Yeah, there are moments where I absolutely yearn for the simplicity of uh, the ownership structure at a club like Norwich. No, we just basically a dealer. You know, there's a club, another club that's got relegation built into the financial model. Two wins on the bounce now. Will it need a third? They've got Palace on the restart after the winter break to actually take them seriously. 
No, I, I think I take them seriously now because I think we've we've reached a stage where they're obviously not a hopeless case. And by the way, <clears throat> I want to recognise the work that Dean Smith has done because think about the the difficulty involved in that job. Like first of all, you take over a group of players whose level of confidence has been shattered. Some of them have gone through it twice with bad Premier League campaigns. Also, a group of players who were serving under a very, very long-term manager, an unusually long-term manager in Daniel Fark. And Dean Smith has actually managed to get a reaction. That's very, very good coaching. But no, I, 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 I go back to what we said earlier about Watford, is that this is not a strong Premier League in the sort of the bottom five places. Put two wins together and all of a sudden your reality starts to change. And you see players who've been punchlines like Josh Sargent a little bit. I, I still think Josh Sargent's quite a limited player, but there's a contribution all of a sudden. And by way of just being competent, you can survive. So I think Palace, that's a very difficult game to come back to because Palace will be reinforced by the the AFCON players. Wolf Sahar will be back most likely. Che Kuroto will be back. And those have been big misses, clearly. But I think we saw yesterday how good a player Michael Elise is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, Everidge Easy is getting fitter. That's a talented player. That's a talented team now. Add in a Conor Gallagher type. Palace are not sort of have kind of broken free of the identity which they've worn for a couple of years which is that kind of limited lower half table they can beat good sides and uh, Norwich are a few wins away from being a good side yet but it's it's interesting and uh, it needed to be I don't think it's a theme that we, we dealt with earlier I don't think the Premier League benefits from hopeless cases I don't think it looks very good in Germany there's a team um, who came up from the Zweiderbundsliga and I don't think they waited until the end of November to get their first win of the season. And over time, and my German is kind of limited, so I wasn't really fully part of this conversation, but that sort of situation is involved in the kind of, oh, the Bundesliga isn't very good this season. It's missing the big clubs, the Schalkers, the highest vowels, those, those kind of tight sides. And we get we get this, this little diddly club in, 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 in recompense. And they started to win. They won over the weekend as well. And I think it's good for the league. I think it's good to see clubs move in and acquire some sea legs at that level. And that's kind of what Norwich are doing. They're away from competency, but it is... Uh, no, no, I haven't given up on them. Yeah. Which clubs then could be drawn in, Jordan? You know, mentioned Leeds earlier on. They had their two wins on the bounce before they lost to Newcastle. I suppose when you look at it, they're missing Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford really badly, aren't they? They really are. They really are. I mean, I was I was looking over the weekend at the table, and I think Leeds... I mean, I, I guess you kind of have to drag them in there to some degree, because I, th- I think Brentford are in are in that mix now as well, and they've played two more games than Leeds. So, I guess by default, Leeds are you know candidates to be dragged into that bottom three. I think they'll just be okay. I think that bottom half, the bottom half, the bottom half is really bad, and I don't think you have to do a lot to. I think they've got enough to kind of avoid or to become the best of the worst, if you like. But they they need to score some goals. I, I don't quite know what's happened to Banford. Is, is it is it an ongoing a thigh strain or a calf strain? I don't know why he's missed so much of the season, but they are they are badly missing him and Rafina. Rafinha by himself, you know, he won't be able to shoot them, you know, shoot them up the table. I do think with Leeds, though, they've got the the, the energy in most games that I think will generate enough points for them to be okay. They're not flat. Like I look at some teams like Watford and Burnley and Everton now, they look flat. There's no spirit there. There's no bite. There's no fight. I think at least with Leeds, even on a bad day, 
you know you're going to get that. My mob Arsenal beat them 4-1 just before Christmas. But they were still, they were still spirited. They were still fighting. They were still trying. They were just low on quality. And I think that will ultimately see Leeds be, be, be okay. But yeah, I definitely think at the moment, I think Brentford down, I'd have them all as candidates to go down. Mm. Rafinha, Seb, he's a big transfer waiting to happen, isn't he? It's a fabulous player. Fabulous player. I watched that game against Newcastle on Saturday and until the, the Newcastle goal went in, Leeds were really, really good and they were really good around him. He has that thing where he's a very left-footed player, but even though defenders know where he's going with the ball, which side of him, them, them he's going to take it, they can't stop it sometimes. He's that good. So, yeah, I like for, for me, I don't think Leeds can afford to lose him in January. I think that just because Calvin Phillips is still out. We've talked about Bamford. There are still problems in defence as well. And the lack of goals clearly is is a, is a hindrance. So they'd have to wait. I, I mean, I, I wonder, like I, to me, Leeds are, Leeds are an example of what happens if you have an idlog as a head coach in that Piazza is a wonderfully magnetic personality in many ways. And he's a very, very interesting person. At the same time, when there are, when there are things which impinge upon his ability to kind of realise his vision for how the game is, and when they, when when his sort of his reluctance to detach himself and employ a slightly more pragmatic approach during troubling months, when that's exposed, this is kind of what happens. Now, Leeds played quite well on Saturday, but I think we've seen, and Jordan mentioned the Arsenal game, I think we've seen plenty of instances where it might have been a good idea to just, right, well, we're going to play five across the back and sit in deep in this game because we might get a point. And when you have someone like Bielsa, it's just not going to happen because they don't mm. believe in it. So that's the difficulty, but they, they cannot um, cannot lose Rafinha. They might do in the summer. I think he's, I mean this with all due respect, but I think he, he is a he's a top four player in, a, in most leagues in, in Europe. I think he's fabulously gifted, but uh, you can't lose him now just because psychologically, the psychological blows... So when you see a reaction like that to a goal which feels significant in a season, you wonder sort of what else the team can take and losing what is clearly their best player, not high on that list, I don't think. I don't think that's um, the route to safety. You mentioned the Everton earlier, Jordan. Ten defeats in 13. Negativity is persisting there despite the injection of emotion and a bit of fear probably from Duncan Ferguson. Is this an avoidable mess? I would say all messes are avoidable. Um, <laughs> but this one, I think, is tricky because a, a little bit like with Watford... Actually, no, not like Watford. I think Watford have a plan. It's just a bad plan. I don't think Everton even have a plan. It just seems to be, we've got lots of money. Let's invest in B-type players for lots of money, B-list players for lots of money, and appoint the manager that's the most obvious one and see where it takes us. And I think that 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 has really infuriated the Everton fans because they see themselves as a big club. They are a big club and they think they're drifting. I was speaking to my producer a couple of weeks ago. No, actually it was the week, the day they lost us to, to, to Norwich. And I said to myself, is there a more downbeaten set of supporters in the Premier League than Evertonians? And what I meant by that was, I've not. Seen, if you're an Everton fan, when was the last time you had any joy watching your club? And then my my producer said to me, "Well, yeah, but what about Newcastle and Burnley?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, but at least those fans had a year in the Championship, where they were winning games, they lifted a trophy. There was there was some joy in the last few years. You're an Everton fan. When was the last Premier League season where you genuinely 
you know, had joy watching your football team. I th I can't remember, but you, you're going back to probably Moyes. They had that kind of good year under Martinez, but it hasn't been good for so, so long. And the fans just don't know where to go because the team are spending money. Most clubs are crying out for their owners to spend money. They spend money. They just don't spend it particularly well. And, and where they go from here on in, I don't know. The talk of Ferguson and Rooney taking over, I think is a, I just, I, at first I was like, this, that's such a bad idea. It's nostalgia FC. However, I thought about it some more. And I think someone like Duncan Ferguson for the remainder of the season would inject a level of spirit and discipline into that team that I think would in the least short term keep them keep them afloat because they are don't get it wrong they are in danger of going down I, I don't normally buy into the whole it's one of our own let's bring so-and-so back to the club but I think in this example actually I would appoint Ferguson for the short term I just finally I just I find it interesting why on this with the third occasion the owners don't feel he's a viable candidate for the job long term now, maybe he doesn't want it long term. I don't know. But I find that interesting as well. Can I can I offer a counterpoint, though? Just because to me, I watched that game and it felt like a good thing that Everton lost that because I think there were certain improvements in their, their tone of performance. I think Jordan's right. Like, uh, I think Duncan Ferguson can be a kind of a, also a magnetic presence, but someone that inspires an immediate improvement. I think had Everton won that, then what happens is it encourages another short-term cycle, which is that all we need to do here is make superficial changes and change a coach and uh, change the voices in the dressing room and change the system and the formation. Problems at Everton, some of the problems at Everton have been to do with head coaching, but all of those problems and many others are related to decisions made relating to everything at the club, which goes well beyond the dugout and the technical area. If I was an Everton fan, and this, this, this chimes with the point about enjoyment, I don't understand what my club's aim actually is. I know we've got a new stadium coming in 2025, I think, so three years away. But what is, what is our guiding philosophy as a team on the pitch? What are we trying to do? Who's making decisions? What is the basis around which we recruit? I've got no idea because you over the summer, you appointed a new head coach and you shaped the club around him and then sacked him, sold key players, to accommodate Rafa Benitez and then he was gone but at the same time like Marcel Brands who when he arrived he was he was supposed to be indicative of a culture an idea like Brands built a reputation in the identification and development of younger players and yet they never he never seems to have had much agency at Goodson Park that confuses me as a fan and so what I need as a supporter to be enthusiastic and to enjoy my life as a fan is to buy in to my club's vision. And Everton aren't doing that. And just sticking, um, I think Wayne Rooney's done actually a terrific job at Derby. I, I, I think um, he has far exceeded expectations. And I don't think, you know, there, there's still people out there looking down on him and, and, and what he's done there. I think it's kind of miraculous, actually. But nothing is going to change just by coaching appointments. It never does at a club like Everton. You have to, unless you have a huge amount of money which gives you financial primacy, you have to have an idea and Everton don't. Everton have whims and changes of mind and uh, changes of mood and they make decisions based on I don't know what, but it's not good and that needs to change before anything else does. 
Yeah, it's all a bit random, isn't it? You know, if if you had Vitor Pereira in your managerial bingo, congratulations. He, he apparently is the latest manager who's about to be interviewed for the vacancy at Goodison. I think we'll learn a lot about Everton in their next league game, which is away at Newcastle. One thing that stays with me from that game on Saturday, Jordan, was the sight of Steven Gerrard at Goodison. He's got the scouse strut down to a T, isn't he? <laughs> he really does. He really does. Um, and some, I, I think Aston Villa are the team to watch the next couple of years. I, I really think, uh, I was speaking to a few people on another podcast a few weeks ago about signing of the season so far, and I put Gerrard in there because I think there's an appointment, and it's not a transfer, but as an appointment, I think that that is... <laughs> is the most significant and the best possible manager they could have got in with someone that I think is on on the rise. I think we're seeing with the Coutinho bringing in on loan and the likes of Dinya, okay, granted, he was desperate to get out of Villa. Someone that has pull, someone that is respected. I think someone we're also seeing with the tactical nous. I think Aston Villa could be the team to really watch in terms of top six over the next two couple of years. I know he's he wants to downplay his links with Liverpool, what, what may happen in the future there. But the three things that I think Liverpool are going to want to see before they even look at Steven Gerrard, A, win a, win a cup at Villa. I can see him doing that in the next couple of years. Have a style of play that is that is progressive and exciting. You go to Liverpool, you've got to do that. And the third one is, I forgot the third one. Now, third one is, oh, European football. That was it, sorry. So style of play, they've got to get European football, I think, two years in a row. And they've got to win a cup. And I think those are three things he's got to do. And I think he can do all three of those things in the next two years to move on. I think if he delivers those three things in the next two seasons, I think Villa will let him go with their blessing. Yeah, the, the, I think the key element of it, Seb, is that there's youth as well, isn't there? And the academy is beginning to produce. You know, Jacob Ramsey looks like a potential young player of the year to me. And there are suggestions around the Midlands that Carney uh, Chukumaker could even be better than him. Yeah, well, I was speaking to a Villa fan on Twitter who said that Jacob Ramsey's brother's better than him. I, I mean, I'd love to see the gene pool in that family because yeah. Jacob Ramsey... Is it, a, is, it a, is it a Bellingham situation with, uh, with Jude I and no Jay? Like I, 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 it's news to me, but I'll I tell you what, I, I do know that Ramsey, Jacob Ramsey, is a fabulous player in the making. I think Brilliant. what's really telling is that if you watch Villa at the moment and watch how many moves, in the last couple of games at least, have involved him, Emi Buendia and Philip Coutinho and that little triangle of talent there, it's very telling that he fits in with that group. Like you're talking about a guy that's moved clubs for over £100 million, Philip Coutinho, Emi Buendia, who cost north of 30 and you've got this kid who's barely two year, really two proper years of experience, who just looks fabulous. He's an England player in the making, no doubt about that. Like he, he he reminds me a little bit of um, reminds me a bit, a bit of Adam Lallana actually, in the sense that everything he does is so elegant and languid, and he receives the ball in all these excellent positions. He presses so well. He finishes much better. I mean, what, I, I think I. The finish that uh, he produced at, uh, I think it's Carroll Road against Norwich. It's just class, just class. Take off either foot and just um, beat defenders off either side. It just looks a very, very good player. And I, I think this is part of it. So we talked about um, Everton and some of the issues there. I think this is this is what we're alluding to, the kind of the general excitement, this idea that your football club is going in the right direction. And yes, the money of Sawiris and Edens makes a difference, but you've got to have money in football to progress at this level. We know this. But the added layer is... 
you have these these young talents coming through and every time you watch them you learn a little bit something 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 else about them you notice a new trait or a new ability or you form a sort of slightly different opinion about what they might become it's fascinating and that goes along with kind of producing good football too and uh yeah i'd love to be a villa fan it'd be um it'd be very very exciting time at the moment if we're looking at other upwardly mobile clubs, what about Southampton, Jordan? You know, Mo Salisu was, was outstanding against Manchester City. In Armando Brogia, you've got another Chelsea Academy product who's probably destined to build a really good career elsewhere, a bit like uh, Livramento, his, his teammate at, at St Mary's. What's the ceiling for this sort of club, you know, given that they're under new ownership? I think the ceiling for them would be if they can, in the next couple of years, be aiming for a top eight finish. I think eighth feels to me like, you know, the limits of where I can't see them, you know, breaking past an Arsenal, Villa, Spurs, West Ham, Leicester. For them to surpass those teams, I just don't see that. But I think if Southampton can kind of can uh, be you know on the on the cusp of trying to finish in a European spot and finish between seventh and say you know, 7th and 11th, I think that would be deemed progress for them for the next couple of seasons. One thing I find interesting is that they seem to have not be able to produce as many of the young talents that we saw come through or their scouting system isn't as particularly as good as it was, you know, maybe five or six years ago when they had all those players that Liverpool, you know, mainly picked off one by one. So I think they need to kind of really reinvest in, in doing that again. If they're going to go big and spend with these new, new owners, then I think Villa is the model to see where you can get a mixture of producing your own young talent whilst really making a mark in the European transfer market too. But I think if they can identify like I said, finishing in that kind of 8th to, to 10th or 11th kind of standing and a cup run. Team like Southampton, for me, are never going to finish in the top four or top six. But they can win an FA Cup. They can win a League Cup. And I think that maybe is where Southampton, their focus for the next couple of seasons should, should be, in my view. Mm. Let's look at the scramble for fourth, Seb. Manchester United, now they hold that position at the moment. Frankly, they baffle me. They continue to dig out these unlikely wins after really failing to impress. At what point does that become a strength rather than a sign of weakness? Oh, uh, good question. It's the old adage, isn't it, about winning when you play badly. I felt Saturday's win was a little bit more about West Ham not really having enough strength and depth and having too narrow a core of players, but... But, but, late winners are late winners. Also, seeing Marcus Rashford score, given the last few months that he's had, really positive development. I think at the moment, why it matters is for Ralph Ranick, in the, Ralph Ranick's ideology is not going to bed in within three months. It's just not going to happen. He's someone that kind of, he wants to be an architect of a club, not somebody who sets up a team in a particular formation and gets them to play in a certain way. That is the, that, that is the product of work he does the bigger overarching work that he does generally. So why it matters is, well, the more games they win, the more credibility he has, the more agency he might have in whatever this consultancy role he acquires in the summer it becomes. Also, it's imperative that Manchester United are playing Champions League football, just is. It's a humiliation might be a, a too strong a word, but it is at least a little bit silly to see a club like that playing anywhere other than the Champions League, given the resources at their disposal. It's just nonsense for them to, to underperform to that level. And also from a recruit, recruiting standpoint, the way forward is lit by being able to provide Champions League football to players. It always has been and it always will be. But Ranik, I, I think, win games, 
be able to point to a position higher up the table and all of a sudden, yeah, it's that word, it's credibility. And it's very, very important. Man United just need to win games at the moment. Can, can I just briefly add to the, the Marks Rashford mention that said there with the goal he got late on? I think it was one thing I noticed about Rashford was it was the first time in I think maybe a year and a half I saw him smile. And I think someone like Rashford is at his best when he when he's got when he's when he's happy and he's smiling. Even if he's not necessarily playing well, he's still you know got a, got a smile on his face. He smiled, and I think I'm a bit uncomfortable with this kind of narrative that all the work he's doing off the field is significantly impacting his performances on the field. Whilst I agree, he's paid to do a job, and you've got to do that job. I, I totally understand that. If it was if I was a United fan, I want to see Mark Fletcher perform on the pitch. But I don't like this conflation of the stuff that he's doing off the field is the reason, mm. and he's got to stop that because he's got to get back to football. It kind of is akin to the old American just shut up and dribble, which I'm not comfortable with as well. So I was really glad. I was I hated it as an Arsenal fan. Absolutely hated it. It was a, it was a <laughs> kick in the gut. But as a Marcus Rashford fan, I love just seeing him smile. It was really it was really nice. Didn't go down well with too many West Ham fans either, to no, be honest. No. Um, you know, and, and we are in an age where the come and get me plea is becoming even more subtle. If you're that West Ham fan, Seb, are you concerned by Declan Rice's pretty flattering comments about playing at Old Trafford? <laughs> no, because I think you have to accept it. Like this is this is life for clubs who are not Manchester United, Manchester City, and Chelsea. It's just the way it is, and Liverpool, I, I suspect. Like I, um, there was a Masrawi, the Ajax fullback slash wingback over the weekend. He was talking about his contractual situation. He was very, very transparent. He said, "Like, you know, if I'm not renewing my contract, then it generally means one thing." And I'm a big fan of players being kind of straightforward and not patronising fans or not sort of leading them down the garden path. And Declan Rice, if West Ham can get in the Champions League, then maybe Declan Rice stays at West Ham. If they don't, he's going to be enticed to a, to a club that can offer that kind of football. And this has been a reality of the game for a very long time. Everton fans will know that. Tottenham fans will know that. For a while, Liverpool fans knew that. You know, it, it's just, it's the way it is. And I don't see him as someone that will abandon ship in the middle of the season. So there's, you know, there's comfort in that. And also, West Ham will get a massive fee for Declan Rice. Like you're talking about a very good player. You're talking about a very, very good English player, which comes with the kind of the, the usual taxes. And so he, it's disappointing because it, as when it happens, it would be disappointing. But at the same time, like there, there is a, an advantage to be taken from the development of this fabulous player. It's a player they didn't pay a fee for. So it will be 60, 70, 80 million pounds worth of pure profit. And for a club like West Ham, it's been a long time since you've seen like that kind of sale happen, really. Yeah, but when you look at it, I'm going to try and bring things a bit together now, chaps. I'm going, I want to look at your respective clubs or the clubs with which you're associated. You'll go first, Jordan. Arsenal. Do they need to pay the asking price for Vlavic? They they certainly need a striker, don't they? And with Aubameyang, you know, there's suggestions of more indiscipline at, at, at Afcon. Do they just need to get get him out of the building as soon as? So the first question with Vajovic, I think Arsenal need to be very careful. The, 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 the reported fee that's going to be required to get Vajovic in this window, I'm seeing is like 68 million. Now, spending that sort of money in January, you've got to be really, really sure that he's the guy you want. 
He's the guy that fits into how you're trying to play for the next couple of years. You've also got to be very, very sure that Mikel Arteta is going to be there next season. Because one thing that I think no one's talking about is the fact that it's so tight between United, Spurs, Arsenal, West Ham, and now even Wolves. One of those teams is going to finish eighth. <laughs> it could be United. It could be Arsenal. Could, they're going to finish eighth. It's going to be so close. If Mikel Arteta doesn't finish in the top six, Mike, you know me. I'm Team Arteta. But if he doesn't get at the bare minimum top six, I don't see how he can continue in his job. And if you're going to outlay that, that amount of money on a striker in January, you've got to know that he's fitting into a plan for the next two or three years. So I think they've got to be very careful a bit with that signing. And I know they've got, there's a lot of strikers, Aubameyang, Lacazette and Eddie Nketiah running down their contracts. They're going to go for free in the summer. So I get the kind of need for panic, but Arsenal can't afford to panic. What they don't want to be doing is left with a striker in a year's time, Vlajevic, on a massive contract who doesn't fit the style of play of the new manager potentially. So yes, Arsenal need a striker ASAP, but I think they need to go for this Vlajevic guy if they think he's the guy that's going to propel them for the next two or three years, not just we need we need a guy now. Regarding Aubameyang, listen, I was very, very supportive of Arteta's stance in disciplining him. One of the big things at Arsenal in the last five or six years, maybe more, is a lack of, it's a culture at Arsenal needs to be changed. He's trying to address that culture of, of more discipline, accountability, as Seb used that word earlier on as well. And he's done that with Aubameyang. Now you're in a position whereby, okay, how long are you going to continuously punish Aubameyang? I've heard conflicting reports about Aubameyang's conduct in Africa, the AFCON. I've heard from some journalists out there that actually it's been massively blown up what he's been doing out there. I've heard from other journalists that actually he's been a disgrace and he's been an embarrassment out there. So I can't really comment on, on, on terms of his conduct out there, but from an Arsenal perspective, I think Mikel Arteta now has to really find his man management skills and find a way to reintegrate Aubameyang back into the team, even if it is just for six more months. Because yes, Arsenal need a forward. And yes, I think that he was right to punish Aubameyang, but he can't cut off his nose to spite his face and he needs a striker. And Aubameyang is there. Try and find a way to reintegrate him and use him again. Mm. It's a little bit similar with Spurs, is it, Seb? In as much as that their season's probably about to be shaped, and maybe even their short-term future, uh, being shaped by this struggle for the purse strings, which always seems to happen at Spurs, doesn't it? You know, they, they need creativity. They need some balance in midfield. Looks like Conte's already made his mind up on Delhi and Ndombele and, and, and also Lo Celso. What's going to happen, do you think, at your club in the next couple of weeks or next week or so? And will that influence Conte's long-term future with them? I don't know what will happen, but I know definitively it will shape his long-term future. If Conte doesn't get what he wants, then we know what he does. Spurs need to have a bit of a think about this because I think they need to be appreciative of the fact that they're very, very lucky to be able to have appointed Antonio Conte in the first place. There aren't many teams in, who have their squad and who are in their position that get to appoint a manager like that. And they also want to appreciate what life looks like should he walk out on them. I don't think you're going to appoint a superstar coach. You're not going to appoint like a, you know, one of the sort of the great minds of European football. You're back to your, your Nuno Espirito Santo shelf. What needs to happen? I don't know what will happen. What needs to happen? Ndombele needs to go. Lothelso needs to go. Unfortunately, I love Deli Ali. I've got a lot of time for him as a player and as, as a person. He needs a new club just because he needs a fresh start. He needs to stop sort of chasing his past a little bit at Tottenham. And also, I don't think the system works for him, really. So he needs to go somewhere where he feels comfortable. And you need to spend some money. It's just 
there's no there can be no excuses there can be no there's always an excuse with Tottenham isn't there there's always a kind of yeah but it's uniquely difficult for us because of this and you can't you can't sign a player to support Harry Kane because no one wants to be his backup and you can't sign a midfielder because oh I don't know and you know can't get this player because uh, XYZ is always an excuse so this time if you want Antonio Conte to stay and if you want Antonio Conte to deliver need another defender another wing back another midfielder and you need someone to support Kane you just you can't do it on the cheap can't do it can't do it and and fundamentally I, I think it's very telling that over the last five days Spurs went from the euphoria of that win at Leicester which was wonderful you know I'm dancing around my living room trying not to kind of antagonize my cats like my wife's teaching me the virtue of, of celebrating silently which <laughs> I feel I feel like I'm hemorrhaging when I do that um <laughs> trying to try to bite back on my enthusiasm to what I saw at Stamford Bridge, which it was just rubbish, rubbish. And I, I don't blame the coach. I don't blame the coach. I just think he's doing what he can. He's, he's like a chef with limited ingredients. It's just players in positions just aren't good enough. There's no tact glance. There's no analysis. It's just you over there, you over there, you over there. You're not good enough to be playing at this level. You can never win this kind of game. And, and everyone knows it. And, and so you have to show the same care and consideration to the first team as Spurs always seem to with the stadium or the NFL deal or whatever else they're doing like it's as a Spurs fan it, it's very disheartening because it feels like the team is the least important thing there and um, yeah it, it really does you know ever weigh at your uh, your enthusiasm for what, for, for, the, for this and it would do to Conte Conte is will always if Conte left Tottenham now he'd have another job by tea time Spurs need to think about that. Really, really, they do. Yeah. Well, I suppose, and please shout if you disagree with me, chaps. It looks to me the top three are settled. City, Liverpool, Chelsea. Given that, just want to end very briefly looking at uh, VAR. I know it's tiresome, but Patrick Vieira yesterday, Jordan, was he right to complain about big club bias? Yes, in in a word, I th I think there has been and always, unfortunately, will be big club bias. Referees will deny that. The, the, you know, the officials will say no, 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 and they will also be offended by the idea that their professionalism is is swayed based on who they're refereeing. But I think there's an element of human nature. I think there's an element of human nature that, you know, you walk into a club and the prettiest girl's going to get the attention. It's not necessarily that the girl over there isn't most intelligent or the most talented, but the pretty girl gets, it's just the, the, the way the brain is wired, it's going to go to the most attractive woman in the club. And I think when referees are, are, are at Old Trafford and they're at um, the Emirates and they're at Etihad and Anfield, or even at smaller grounds where there's a big team playing, I think there is that inherent natural leaning towards the benefit of the doubt or decisions that go with the big club. So I think he was right. I think the bigger issue is I don't think you're ever going to change that. I don't think that's just one of the unfortunate things about football that big clubs, big personalities generally get, get favoured more so than everybody else. Given that West Ham fans were unhappy with what went on in the build-up to, to the uh, goal at Old Trafford, what about the standard of refereeing? As it, you know, there's a there's a common consent. It is pretty low at the moment, and is that being compounded by the supposed certainties of VAR? Do you think? 
No, I, I think it goes a little bit higher than that. I would uh, point my finger at the PGMOL and the kind of the way that, careful how I phrase this, but the manner in which they kind of argue their way around mistakes. And again, it's like the fifth time we've talked about it, accountability. There was that period of time about a year ago, two years ago, when there were kind of anomalies in the rules and mistakes made and incorrect uses of VAR. And there's always a reason why the PGM MOL are not wrong. Always a reason, always a reason. Even if it's kind of like, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of change the interpretation of the rules in midweek so that we don't have to admit a mistake. And I think that that's part of the problem. I think it's a culture of, you know, never, never admitting mistakes, always finding a way to explain why actually, you know, right decisions are made. And I think that comes from the very, very top, very, very top. And they are, I, it, it is what it is. It infuriates me. Uh, I hate it as much as everybody else. And um, I, I think there is a little bit of performative outrage about it now. Like I think every VAR decision is now treated as the worst thing that has ever happened. And I don't really buy that. I find it's in, it, it's in, interruption to games worse than the decisions it makes. Um, like that Liverpool penalty, give it or don't give it, but don't take 15 replays in five minutes to make up your mind. Exactly. I, I don't I don't have a problem with it either way, but just quickly, 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 quickly. It's a sport. It's not maths at school with like protractors and you know and, and drawing lines on the screen. I, I I I it's a sport. It's entertainment. It's my release from all that stuff. So don't don't ruin it. But I don't know. I I think I don't know about refereeing standards, but I, I think culture around refereeing is uh, is not in a good place. Put it that way. Yeah, well, I'd agree with that. I think you know VAR remains a bureaucratic monstrosity you know i think if you can't reach say a decision feel, Mike, well it. you've got to do it you've got to do it you know if you can't reach a decision inside say 30 seconds it's got to go with the on-field referee regardless of the risk of human error because human human error is part of life the problem is i think the standard is ref- of refereeing has never been lower but Decisions are being reached without football logic or a feel for the game. They're hidden from the crowd and from TV's millions, by the way. Now, there's no shame in making a mistake, but the errors will continue until Mike Riley is put out to pasture. His old pals act's gone on far too long. Now, do you agree? Please let me know either way. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Seb for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.